Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between our real-life double act of the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page, that's him, and this is what we do. If there's a bubble that burst, we pricked it first. We have reached our 100th episode of laying out inconvenient truths about how business and financial markets really work, from exposing sycophants and stenographers of Wall Street who just praise, not appraise companies they're covering. We've smacked the SPACs and we were early in calling out NFTs, they were not for me. And taking inspiration from the who's won't get fooled again, we ask why do we find ourselves constantly getting back into bubble trouble? Don't markets ever learn? So today we take you back with one of the biggest bubbles bursting in living memory, Enron, which went from America's seventh largest company to bankrupt within a year at the turn of the millennium. How many booms, busts, frauds, and financial irregularities have we witnessed since then? We lost count. A hundred episodes in, we get to sit down and learn from Andy Fastow, the former CFO of Enron, who we've wanted as a guest on this pod since, well, before the podcast began. Buckle up for a conversation about what happened that fateful year, why it's continued to happen since, and honestly, where and how, not if, the same is going to happen again. Today, the first part of a two-episode conversation with Andy Fastow. More in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Andy, to welcome you to the podcast, to say this is a dream come true would not be an exaggeration. The purpose of Bubble Trouble wasn't just to get you on the show. I think the purpose of Bubble Trouble was inspired by you. In particular, a talk that you gave in London in 2015, a sweltering heatwave of a summer, a Financial Times event, Financial Times being a huge friend and supporter of this show. I had done some panel about Spotify, lost a lot of body fluid on stage, it was that hot. I walked into a big tent and I saw you on stage. And I'll just preface this by saying, Bethany McLean and Peter Elkin's Smartest Guys in the Room is one of my favourite books and documentaries of all time. And I'll never forget the scene where you held aloft two items. On one hand, you had the CFO of the Year Award. On the other hand, you had a prison card. And you asked the audience, how is it possible that one person can be given these two things within 12 months of each other? And I'm sitting at the front row in that marquee and I just felt I had to put my seatbelt on because nobody else could tell this story. So I am grateful that you're here today. Well, thanks, Will. Thanks, Richard. Happy to be here. Um, oh, I guess I have to ask the first question. If I was the inspiration for this podcast, how, do, how come I don't have a piece of it? Um, <laughs> so I've worked in copyright for many years. So you have a performing <laughs> right. You've registered, a, you've registered with ASCAP. You'll get royalties. Okay. 
But I guess I'd start out by saying when I held those two items up, Will, back at the Alphaville conference in London, I didn't just say, how is it possible that I got both of these within such a short period of time? I said, how is it possible that I got both of these for doing the same deals within the same amount of time? And that was really the essence of the talk, is that it's possible to do deals that technically follow the rules, but at the same time are misleading or ultimately fraudulent, which is what I did. And let me make one thing clear if I can. Sure. Um, Before I talk about Enron, before I talk about my own actions, and if your audience were to remember just one thing about my comments today, I hope this is what they remember. I believe that what I did was wrong. I believe that what I did was unethical, and I believe that what I did was illegal. I take full responsibility for my actions. And in fact, I consider myself one of the people most responsible for Enron's failure. So I own that. So please, for those who are listening, when you hear me talk about what happened at Enron and try to provide some insight into what happened at Enron and how that might be relevant today, and I think it is relevant today, in no way is that me making an excuse for my actions or minimizing what I did or trying to blame other people for what I did. Absolutely not. I own it and I'm responsible for it. Heartfelt thanks for those words. And Maybe a quick correction to Richard's introduction, because on stage at the Financial Times event, you changed your job title. You called yourself the Chief Loophole Officer. Is that correct? Well, that's what I should have been called when I was (laughs) at Enron. I had the title Chief Financial Officer for several years, but I should have been called Chief Loophole Officer. And again, that gets to the essence of what I think the true Enron story is. Now, look, I mean, people have read a lot about Enron. They've watched movies. Bethany McLean and Peter Alkine wrote a long book about Enron. And I understand what most people probably think, which was that Enron was a case of a few sinister guys sitting in a dimly lit conference room trying to commit fraud. I would argue that's not the case. And instead, I think it's better described as a big group of people, accountants, attorneys, finance people, bankers, all sitting in a brightly lit conference room, thinking they were doing the right thing in many cases, but committing fraud. And the question is, how is that possible? And an oversimplification, but I think a good word to use to describe what happened at Enron, is the word loophole. Enron was not necessarily a case of people trying to break rules. It was a case of people trying to exploit rules, finding the loopholes in the rules to get to the answers they want. And that's a common thing. And I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with that. But when people find these loopholes, when people go into the gray area of accounting, it involves a lot of risk. And when people's brains hear the phrase, it's been approved, or uh, you're allowed to do this, they stop thinking about risk. And Enron is really more than anything else a case of not seeing the risk, and even when we saw it, mispricing the risk, which led to the downfall of the company. 
First of all, I think that's a brilliant summary because, and one of the pieces I saw in preparing for this was to watch the the video of, of the movie Smartest Guys in the Room. And someone made the point that the accountants, the lawyers, there were so many enablers that should have been saying no or should have been raising questions throughout that. But they had a massive conflict of interest. And Will and I were just running down since we started the podcast. And we'll ask you for a couple suggestions as well. But since we started the podcast, we've had SPACs, NFTs, crypto, Wirecard, Evergrande, Credit Suisse went bust. Credit Silicon Suisse. Valley Bank went bust. FTX went bust. You had the COVID stocks blow up. And so is what you're describing, what you just described for us, this something that is just such a widespread phenomenon that we're seeing it everywhere. And Enron was just maybe a very high profile example. When you think about all these other august institutions and paragons of the economy that are now no longer with us. And that was just since we started this podcast and a half, three years ago. That's a great question, Richard. But let me start out by, if I can, offering that I think two of the premises in your question, I disagree with. You called the accountants and the attorneys enablers, and you said that they should have been pointing out the problems with these deals. And I disagree with that. And this is an important, an important fact, and, and one that many executives and most directors I talk to don't really appreciate. The gatekeepers, what we think of as gatekeepers, auditors and attorneys, are there for only one reason, to tell us whether we are following the rules. Okay? They are not there to tell us whether what we are doing involves too much risk or whether it's in the best interests of our shareholders a long time or whether it would be considered ethical or whether it would be to reputational risk and demise. That's not their job. And they don't want that job. There's too much risk associated with that job. They're only there to tell, answer one very specific question. Are you following the rules? Now, people tend to think of rules as black and white, especially with accounting. If you're an accounting student, you got debits and credits, and if it balances at the end, you get an A. <laughs> but account, accounting... I, Andy, is, I, always, I, I always like to differentiate accountants from economists by saying accountants count the beans, economists measure the gaps between the beans. <laughs> now, there's a huge amount of gray area in accounting, and obviously... People know there's a great amount of gray area in the law. That's how you can have opinions from attorneys that directly contradict each other. One extreme example is how is it possible that top attorneys in the U.S. said it's acceptable to torture people after 9-11. But you can always get an opinion. You can make a case. And that's why we have courts and judges and juries to determine which opinion makes sense. But there's a gray area, and that's the key. The Enron story is best described as people, myself especially, who sought to exploit the gray area to get to the answers we wanted. Loopholes is a simple word for that. Now, it's interesting because if I were to ask you, or when I ask audiences, when I talk to them or groups or directors, I, I'll ask them, is the word loophole a pejorative, a bad word? 
and very few people will say it's a bad word. But what's the definition of loophole? It means that you are technically following the rules, but that you're intentionally getting around the principles of those rules. Now, let me ask the question a different way. Let's say you go home tonight and you're sitting at the dinner table with your children and your clever child asks, hey, mom, hey, dad, you've given me some rules I have to live by in this house. I just want to make sure that so long as I technically follow the rules, if I were to find a way to comply with the rules, but get around the reason for those rules, I want to make sure you won't punish me. I suspect that would lead to a rather lengthy discussion about the meaning of your life and risk and reputation and what kind of person you want to be. Okay. Why is it that our brains would give such different answers to that question when we're in business versus when we're talking to our children? It's because we're trained to be in a rules-based society mm -hmm. and to think in terms of complying with the rules. And in fact, generally, when we talk to our children, we say, get permission, follow the rules. Yeah. Because we believe that so long as you're getting permission and following the rules, that by definition, your behavior will be considered acceptable. I'm the poster boy to show that isn't the case. People assume in business you are following the rules. That's why we have auditors and attorneys and other risk management features in our company. That's a precondition. What most companies fail at and what we later tend to call fraud is when companies aren't necessarily breaking the rules. And make no mistake, there are companies and there are people that intentionally break the rules, but they're few and far between, and they're usually caught. Where companies get into trouble is when they are following the rules, but doing something that injects too much risk into their system. Hmm. And that risk eventually catches up with them. And then everyone comes back and they don't ask, were you following the rules? They ask a fundamentally different question. Was this action the action of a reasonable person under normal circumstances? And if you can't answer that question affirmatively, you're in trouble. And, and I think I hear can say, I think what you're describing, in, if I can summarize, it's the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And equally, it's the, if I think in business versus our children, it's the principal agent problem. Here's the problem, Richard. You have to go into the gray area. Okay. That's life. That's business. You have to be in the gray area. And if you don't, you're going to be a too big of a disadvantage. Hmm. Okay. So in no way am I suggesting that companies have to only adhere to the spirit of the law. Okay, what I'm suggesting is that's not practical. You're going to have to find the advantages in the gray area. But when you do, there's greater risk than your brain is seeing. Yeah. And that risk is the danger. Well, we need to switch lanes because we've got, how on earth do you unpack this story in a one-hour podcast? It's mission impossible, but we're going to try. I thought the best thing that we could try and do is to go back in time, way back in time, and just hear from you, Andy, if I can just cut to the chase here, that job interview you had with Enron, walk us through what made you apply to work for Enron, how the interview went, what you thought you were walking into when you joined the company. I think for our audience, that's part of your story that hasn't been told is 
sitting down at a job interview, sending your resume. Take us back to that point in history. Okay, so my background. Very quickly, my background. The most important thing about me is I'm married, miraculously still, after 38 years, given everything my wife has had to endure as part of this whole process. I was in economics in Chinese majors as an undergrad student. I got my MBA at Northwestern University in Chicago. And then I worked for a bank, a continental bank, which at the time was a major money center bank in the U.S. It's now part of, through the consolidations, part of Bank of America. And at Continental Bank, I was focused on securitization and was the junior member on a team of people that developed the first collateralized loan obligations. Oh, wow. Okay, so that was packaging up commercial bank loans. In our case, what were LBO loans, basically, into an asset-backed vehicle and selling them. And it was a way for the bank to, in a large measure, syndicate their loan portfolio very efficiently and profitably. But then we also began to do it for other banks as well. So that was the beginning of what's now, I think, about a $1.3 trillion market in CLOs. Because of that background, I was found by a headhunter in Houston who had just been hired by Enron to find someone with exactly this background. Now, I had never heard of Enron in 1990. Wow. And even most people in Houston had never heard of Enron back in 1990. There was no um, tower back then, right? There's no tower, the famous Enron Tower that hadn't been built. That's right. But I agreed to meet with the headhunter because my wife's family is from Houston. And so why not make the contact? But I really didn't think much of it. But I sat down with the headhunter and after 10 minutes, he said, okay, let's walk across the street to Enron. And my response was, I've never heard of Enron. He said, come on, let's go over and talk to him. And I find myself sitting across a table from Jeff Skilling, who had been hired recently from McKinsey to uh, set up what essentially was described then as a trading operation, like a bank's trading operation, but instead of trading currencies or interest rates, they would be trading natural gas. And before the interview started, I said to Jeff, I said, look, Jeff, you need to understand before this morning, I've never heard of Enron. I know nothing about natural gas. I know nothing about pipelines. I know almost nothing about energy. I'm not sure why I'm here. And he said, he looked at me, he said, because that's exactly what we're looking for. They wanted to find a guy who would <laughs> be able to, he was a good salesman, right? He'd be able to find, they wanted to find a guy who'd be able to finance the acquisitions of large amounts of natural gas reserves, but it would have to be done off balance sheet. Okay. And in this case, through a securitization. And what we were doing at Continental Bank was the closest analogy to what he wanted to do at Enron. I moved down two weeks later. And it wasn't the weather. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've lived in, in Chicago and Houston. I'm not sure which has worse weather. Depends on the <laughs> and, and, and basically, it could have been natural gas. It could have been anything. You were just taking, uh, you were using that process of securitization and taking a commodity asset and figuring out a way to manage risk around it. Well, this new subsidiary was, my job was really very specific. 
Enron wanted to build a market, if you will, in natural gas. But their problem was that there were a lot of buyers, potential buyers for long-term fixed price or what you'd call derivative contracts in natural mm-hmm. gas, but there weren't a lot of sellers. Right. The sellers had the natural gas, but they didn't want to enter into long-term fixed price contracts. And that makes sense if you think about it, because companies that explore for commodities tend to be very bullish. And so they don't want to lock in the price necessarily. So Enron, in order to get the supply side of the market, they needed to acquire the natural gas. But here was Enron's problem. It was balance sheet constrained. It was barely a triple B company that needed to acquire billions of dollars of natural gas. So they'd have both the sell side and the buy side of the market. But they couldn't do it on balance sheet. So they needed to finance it in a way that had been that is different than the way oil and gas had been financed for a hundred years. To me, that seemed very exciting. Oil and gas was the largest commodity market in the world, largest asset market that had never been securitized. And I was going to be given the first shot at it. So, Andy, one more sort of historical scene setting question before we get into the deeper details here is, and I feel very old when I say this, a lot of our audience weren't born when Enron collapsed, which is quite a sad thing to say. In fact, there'll be students graduating from economics today who were born after the collapse of Enron. Let's feel really old. Let's get the Zimmer frames out. Um, Can you describe for that audience just what the office floor was like back then? No cameras on phones, no social media, perhaps no mobile in the early days of your Enron career. Like, just can you, for that younger demographic, just tell us what it was like working in that company? Well, I think that you're referring to the trading floor more than anything else. And that looked very much like a bank trading floor. And in fact, Enron built it from scratch. And from what I understand, by taking the best components of the trading systems and risk management systems from the major banks. Enron worked with banks. And I remember Skilling was working with Bankers Trust at the beginning to, as a, and it was a joint venture. And I think that they, Enron, adopted or incorporated a lot of BT technology, at least from what I understand. And, and Fantastic. one of our most popular podcasts, if you can believe this, was we had a guy named Stephen Clapham who runs a business called Behind the Balance Sheet. And he helps investors understand and do forensic accounting and to try to figure out when there are strange anomalies in accounts. But you mentioned a moment ago how a lot of what was happening at Enron was put off balance sheet. Can you explain in relatively simple jargon-free language to our generalist audience how you can take liabilities and or aspects in a company's books and their balance sheet and put them over to the side so that no one sees them? How did that work? Well, I'm not sure that no one sees them, but they assume a different legal form, if you will. And according to the accounting rules, which are in some cases very arbitrary, and remember, accounting rules don't necessarily reflect reality. They're just a set of rules. A good example of this is operating leases. 
And so I apologize. I'm going to use a little jargon, but operating leases. Now, the rules changed in the last, what is it, about three years ago, the rules changed. But prior to that point in time, operating leases were off balance sheet, which meant that they didn't show up as debt on the balance sheet. They showed up in a footnote instead as a liability or potential, a contingent liability, if you will. Now, for all intents and purposes, operating leases were debt. But because of the legal form, they didn't show up as debt. They showed up as leases in the footnote. Now, that rule changed about three years ago. Now they show up on the balance sheet. Hmm. Has reality changed? No, the rule has changed. So the financial statements look different. Yeah. And people need to keep in mind that when an auditor signs off on financial statements, what they are, and they say it's a fair representation, what they are saying is that it's a fair representation according to the rules. They are not saying it's a fair representation of reality. And now we accept that because we have all of these debt and equity analysts who are supposed to then re reverse engineer and make adjustments to the financial statements so that we get a quote unquote true picture of the financial condition of the company. So which is it? Which is reality? Well, I think, so another you podcast know? we had, which was one of our most popular, again, we had Dan McCrum, the FT journalist who followed the trail of Wirecard. And what he found was the auditors there were presented these bank accounts in the Philippines, and they saw the statements and they never questioned them. Now, those accounts were falsified. But the auditors for doing their job said, well, we were, we checked the bank account and it had this number in it and that's fine. So I think that's another great example. Now, one other thing I'd love you to explain, because yep. I think it was central to Enron's profit story was the notion of mark to market and how you could do a transaction that would generate profit over a long period of time, but you'd recognize all the profit immediately not over that long period of time. Can you help people understand how that came to be? And is it still good in the rules today? Yeah, but Richard, I will answer the question about mark to market, but let me come back to your prior statement about Wirecard. And I'd throw WorldCom and several other companies in this. And there's an important distinction to make. And again, this in no way is an excuse for what I did at Enron. What I did was wrong. But there are two types of fraud, if you will. And we focus only on one type. And by ignoring the other type, that is where the problems arise. Um, in the case of Wirecard, in the case of WorldCom, they just made up numbers, <laughs> made up statements. At WorldCom, I think they erased numbers and just wrote new numbers in. <laughs> That's pretty black and white. Yeah. And when our okay. kids do that, we right. know when the report card comes back and your son has erased right. it and, and put something else in, you kind of know. Right. In the case of Enron, I don't I I don't think anyone ever suggested anything like that was done. And it begs the question. In fact, I was asked this question in one of the depositions I gave in the lawsuits following Enron. Andy. You spent hundreds of millions of dollars devising these complex financial transactions. 
paying fees to the bankers and the attorneys and the auditors and consultants. If you wanted to commit fraud, why didn't you just do what WorldCom did? Just erase a number and put a new number in, and you could have saved all that money and booked it as profit. Opportunity cost right there. It's in that area where the danger really is. And the way the system works now is we leave it to the analysts to detect all of those things and report on them. The conflict occurs very often in the banks with the analysts. As you probably know, almost every company has a buy rating on it. Those same analysts understand that their banks are involved in transactions to change the appearance of the financial statements of those companies. Yet you very rarely see analysts outline those maneuvers, those structured finance transactions, those accounting maneuvers by companies until it's too late. Why is that the case? Conflict of interest. But to differ, differentiate between outright fraud, where you're black and white fraud, I should call it, where you're just faking, making up numbers, creating fake bank statements, versus the fraud where the company, which is a fraud still, where the company is maybe thinking that what they're doing is allowed, like that loophole that your child may want to find. We're going to take a quick break, then back for more with Andy Fasto. Stay tuned. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today, we continue our two-part conversation with Andy Fasso, former CFO or Chief Loophole Officer of Enron. I have to share a story with you. One way that myself and Richard have prepared for the 99 podcast up until now is we go running. And Richard runs a lot faster than me, but when I can keep pace with him, I ask him to, under- how do I understand this crazy market that you work in? He's a 30-year, three-strike veteran of analytical work. I'm not. And he said to me, if you go to the back of an analyst note, you'll find an important sentence which says, this bank currently or intends to do business with the company that we're analyzing. And he said, you show me that Funo and I'll tell you whether it's a buy or sell on the front page. That's right. 
Right. Now, let me, maybe it would be worthwhile because I used the example of operating leases before to give you an example of a gray area transaction um, using an operating lease. Mm. Okay. Now, operating leases are perfectly legal if you follow the rules. And prior to a few years ago, if you followed the rules and did it correctly, all of that debt would instead show up in a footnote as a contingent liability, mm. which is companies typically value at zero, the contingent liability. So all of a sudden the debt just disappears. Why would companies do that in the first place? By having a leverage, it allows them to lower their weighted average cost of capital, mm -hmm. which makes them more profitable. It also allows them to access new pools of capital to expand their business. So there are a lot of good business reasons for getting that leverage and doing it off balance sheet. So in the case of Enron, I'll give you an example from before I was CFO. Enron was acquiring a smaller pipeline for about $1 billion. Now, given if, if Enron were to have financed that acquisition on balance sheet, it would have had to issue about or borrow about $500 million of debt but also it would have had to issue about $500 million of stock, which is dilutive. Shareholders don't like that. That would have been, in essence, too expensive because, of course, equity is more expensive than debt. Okay, so instead, Enron decided to use an operating lease. And again, in case people are unfamiliar with operating leases, this was, until they changed the rule a few years ago, the most ubiquitous form of structured financing in the world. Just in the U.S. alone, there is over a trillion dollars of assets financed in the form of an operating lease. Okay. And again, that makes sense and is perfectly legal if you follow the rules. So in the case of Enron, it did not, it could not finance it on balance sheet. So we did an operating lease. And these, again, are so, were so common. It was literally the attorneys would press a button, the documents would pop out. It was that simple. And we're and to give you an idea of the Im economic impact of this, by doing it off balance sheet in the form of an operating lease, instead of getting 50% leverage on balance sheet, we would get 97% leverage off balance sheet. Roughly speaking, if you put that in economic terms, that was equivalent to $50 million a year in earnings. Hmm. Okay, which flows right to EPS, real earnings. You're saving them, you're saving the money for your shareholders. And think of it as a 10-year deal. So this is a half billion dollars of real economic impact by doing the operating lease. And we're moving ahead. We're about to close. And two days before closing, one of the attorneys who was doing due diligence found a problem. He called a meeting. He said, We've got a big problem. It turns out that Enron owns indirectly a tiny bit of that pipeline. Enron had invested in another company or a private equity fund that had bought a participation in a little spur of the pipe. Now, under the lease operating rules, you cannot do an operating lease if you own any part of the asset. Now, having read all there is to read about Enron, you would think that we would just say, okay, do it anyway, don't tell anyone. That's not how we operated. That's what I mean by the fact that when I say we always tried to stay within the rules. 
But instead of that, what we did is we all got together in a room. And when I say all, what I mean is the accountants, Enron accountants, the outside auditors, Enron finance people, the lawyers, the bankers. And we started trying to figure out how do you structure around this? How do you find that loophole? And we kept going around, but we were having a lot of trouble. And someone would make a suggestion, but the auditor would say, no, that's a problem with FASB, whatever. And someone else would come up with an idea and the attorney would say, no, then I can't give you the true sale opinion. And we were stuck. This was a disaster. And I was literally getting out of my chair to go tell Skilling and Lay about this disaster. And someone in the room says, wait, Andy, before you leave, I've got one more idea, but it's so crazy. I've been afraid to say it. But since we're stuck, I'll throw it out there. <laughs> he said, the ADR. Yeah, we've been trying to do an operating lease of the physical pipeline. But we can't do that according to the lease operating rules. How about instead of leasing the physical asset, we lease the name of the holding company that owns the asset. And in the lease agreement, we assign all the rights to use the assets of the company. If the bankers are willing to be one more step removed from the physical collateral, maybe it works. And we all looked around the room and we're like, can you do that? That's past so the parcel Russian performance enhancing drugs. <laughs> right. We turned to the Arthur Anderson partner. He said, I don't know. I have to call headquarters. And we turned to the lawyer. He says, I don't know. I have to do research. Turned to the banker. He said, I don't know. I'll talk to credit committee. We all got back together the next morning. We turned to the Anderson partner and he said, I talked to the guys in the ivory tower. That's what they call it, <laughs> called headquarters. And they said they can find no rule that says you cannot do this. And we turned to the attorney. He says, I can find no law that says you cannot do this. And we turned to the banker. He said, are you kidding? This is a whole new product line for us. We're in. So we did what I believe was the first operating lease of an intangible asset. Hmm. So let me put it to you, Richard and Will. Is that evil or genius? Well, it's, it, it, it shows in the U.S. economy, which has been financialized to the point where something like 40, 45 percent of the U.S. economy is financial assets trading all the time. It's innovation. And to, in under the letter of the law, not necessarily the spirit of the law, like you said, maybe because it's right. such innovation, no one's thought of it yet, it's not illegal. That's exactly right. So you sort of said innovation, which is another word. I asked the question, evil or genius. That's a little bit of genius. Yeah. But it was also a little bit of evil yeah. at the same time. It was right in that gray area. Now, where companies get into trouble, to finish this anecdote, is that when we walked out of that room, we didn't say, don't tell anyone, be quiet. We were high-fiving, thinking we were just geniuses. No one stopped to think, is there risk associated with doing this deal? Is there risk that someone from the outside will look in and say, wait a minute, we really don't think that qualifies as an operating lease. And we're going to add a billion dollars of debt back to your balance sheet, which would have caused us to lose our investment grade credit rating. No one stopped to think about that risk because we heard the phrase, it's allowed. You're following the rules. Right. It's legal. Right. That's again, that's the danger area 
This gray area is where the most risk is, but it's where the least amount of training for executives and directors occurs. And on that mark-to-market point, which I think is so important, the notion that if you do a a 10-year deal and it's going to generate $50 million of profit over the 10 years, that under the accounting rules, you can book that $50 million of profit in year one, on day one, and assume that it's worse than that. You you can get a deduction for it. It's worse than that, Richard. Yes, mark-to-market accounting, in my opinion, is may have been a rule that was put in place for all the right reasons, but had such bad unintended consequences that it's uh, caused a lot of corporate disasters. I remember when I was at Enron, I had never even heard of mark-to-market accounting. I'm not an accountant by training. And I remember the day that Enron was approved to do mark-to-market accounting for natural gas contracts. It's captured as a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember it vividly because one late one afternoon in a conference room, there are a bunch of people opening bottles of champagne. <laughs> and so I went in, I was kind of a little put off that I hadn't been invited. But after I got over that, I asked what's going on. And they said, the SEC approved mark to market accounting. And I went back to my office and I looked in my old accounting textbooks and to try to find mark to market accounting. And I couldn't really find it and understand it. So I called an old friend at the bank and he explained it to me. But then I went back later on after the party had ended and I asked Jeff Skilling, I said, Jeff, why is this such a big deal for us? And his response was, well, yesterday I was worth $5 million. Today I'm worth $50 million. Because his compensation was based off of reported earnings. Right. And mark-to-market accounting allows you to report future earnings in the present day, whether or not those future earnings actually materialize or not. Now, here's the problem with mark-to-market accounting, though. Mark-to-market accounting makes some intuitive sense. Like, a lot of your listeners probably own stocks or mutual funds, right? And at the end of every day, the mutual fund will look at the price on the screen And it'll adjust the value of your portfolio. So you'll see the gain or the loss that day. That's mark-to-market accounting. They're looking at the market, finding the price, and, and, and recording a gain or a loss that day. Straightforward. That works if there's a screen price for your commodity. It works very well. But what if there's no screen price for your commodity? So in the case of, for example, natural gas... The NYMEX only traded contracts out 18 months. So for the first 18 months, it was very easy to mark to market your contract. But what if you had a 10-year contract for natural gas? What do the accounting rules say? The accounting rules say the company gets to assume what the price of natural gas will be over that entire 10 years. And then they mark their contract against that assumed curve. Who gets to come up with the curve? The company. And that leads to a lot of abuse. So anytime you see companies, people often ask me, how do you spot problems? How can we spot problems? If companies are marking to market assets in illiquid markets or in markets that don't exist, you should be looking at those earnings with a high degree of skepticism. If I can just quickly jump in... Andy, I, I'm fond of describing tech companies as bicycles. 
in that if they don't move forward, they fall over. And if we go from the finance of mark-to-mark accounting to the economics, the incentives, surely that put Enron into becoming a bicycle. That is, if the stock price doesn't move up, the company falls over. It's all hinging on the stock price to cover the ground that hasn't actually been booked yet. Well, you used the key word there, Will, incentive. Okay. You show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. Is that famous expression? Most public companies trade as a multiple of reported earnings. Okay. And people tend to mistake or assume that reported in earnings is synonymous with true economic value. And what I'm suggesting is because there's so much gray area and flexibility for companies to make up the future value of contracts, that they should not assume that reported earnings are the same as true economic value. For example, you don't see this problem with mark-to-market accounting in privately held companies because they're not trying necessarily to report higher earnings. They're concerned with true economic value over the long term. Now, when these private companies start to go public or when they're bought by a private equity fund, often the accounting changes. Private equity funds getting ready to IPO them or flip them. So they start using aggressive mark-to-market accounting to juice earnings. This reminds me very much of, uh, I've spent years looking at companies like Google and Meta and people will say about their advertising businesses, they're marking their own homework. They're telling you whether the ads were effective but they do it in a closed system that you don't get the data from. So I think what you're describing is a process whereby companies mark their own homework as well. Now, let me just give you one final anecdote that a, a billionaire investor told me about one company that you'll know very well in the noughties, which was IBM, where the CFO would go in to see this billionaire investor who was short the stock. And the CFO would tell him, I've already told you what the EPS will be. You don't need to know anything else. And I think it's exactly the point you were describing, which is we'll come up with the numbers to meet the narrative. You don't need to ask the questions about how we're doing it under the hood. And of course, IBM, an icon of American business, famously had a decade of terrible underperformance and ended up getting dismembered because it was so dependent on that flawed accounting. Right. I think I agree with that. And I think another great example of this in, in the United States is General Electric. I mean, I think they've lost something close to $700 billion of market cap. Now, they were among the non-banks. They were considered the best at financial engineering. Yeah. And Jack Welch made a career out of always beating EPS by one penny, you know, and he had the <laughs> longest streak. Because GE had so many levers, yeah. if you will, GE to pull, had. to create the, what I would say weren't earnings, but the appearance of earnings. And let me give you one example that I've read about, I don't know personally, is in their turbine business, which was one of their biggest businesses and apparently one of their most profitable businesses. When the new CEO took over after ML, his name escapes me at the moment. He made a public statement that every turbine we deliver loses money. Now, how is that possible in their 
one of their most profitable businesses. And it was because of the way GE was using mark-to-market accounting. They would package together a turbine with a long-term service Service contract. And then what they would do is they would mark-to-market the service contract. Okay? And, but in order to market, you have to make assumptions about what services are going to be provided over time and what the profitability of those services will be. And what it turns out that it appears they were doing was selling the turbines at a loss, but marking these long-term services contract to market using assumptions that were unrealistic. When you package them together, it looked profitable. The problem was that those assumptions in the long-term service contract didn't come true. And so it was really showing up as an NPV positive economic activity, but it was really losing money over time. And they've had to sort of work their way out of it. And you just, you have to wonder how many bubbles were going to see burst when companies didn't assume 18 months ago, that interest rates wouldn't stay at zero forever and we would never see wage inflation. Well, let's talk about Silicon Valley Bank then. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Silicon Valley Bank is one of the, believe it or not, one of the best analogies to Enron. If you're thinking of Enron like I do, which is that we may have technically followed accounting rules, but what we were presenting the result of the transactions we were doing was massively misleading. That's fraud, okay? I wasn't thinking of it as fraud. I should have been. That's why I say I'm responsible for Enron's demise. Silicon Valley Bank, look, it was one, one accounting decision they made. They didn't think about the risk appropriately with that accounting decision that destroyed that bank. And it all came down to this. During the period up until about a year ago, when there was too much cash floating around the system, especially in Silicon Valley, they received, Silicon Valley Bank received about $40 billion of deposits. Banks, basically, a bank like Silicon Valley Bank could do one of two things with those deposits, make new loans or invest it temporarily. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they couldn't make any more loans. So they had to invest it. So they, I'm oversimplifying this story, but they essentially bought $40 billion of U.S. Treasury securities. Now, on the surface, that sounds very conservative, risk averse, right? It's U.S. Treasury securities. Putting U.S. politics aside, those can't default, right? So it's a safe bet, right? And for the guys at Silicon Valley Bank, This was a great situation because if you were to say, just assume a 2% spread on U.S. Treasury securities back then, that would have been $800 million of profit dropping to the bottom line every day. But here's the problem. These were temporary investments. They weren't going to be held 10 years to maturity, which meant that there was interest rate risk associated with them. Okay. It's interest, obviously, interest rates and the price of a bond are inversely related. So if interest rates fall, the value of your bond rises and vice versa. If interest rates rise, your bonds will be worth less. Now, they had to make an accounting decision. Where do you technically put these bonds for accounting purposes? 
The only decision that makes sense for a bank like Silicon Valley Bank is to put it in your trading portfolio, right? Which is liquid. It's meant to be if you, if you need to make a new loan or depositor withdraws their money, you sell the bond, you give them the money, right? The problem is trading portfolios are subject to mark-to-market accounting, okay? Which meant that every day as interest rates fluctuated, they'd have to book gains or losses. Now, if there's one thing public companies don't like, or I should say that Wall Street doesn't like, is earnings volatility, unpredictable earnings volatility. Okay, so there is a problem for the bank. Now, you could solve that problem very easily. You can buy an interest rate hedge. The problem is the cost of the interest rate hedge would wipe out most of that $800 million of excess profit. Mm. And they didn't want that. They wanted the $800 million of excess profit. So instead, they followed the accounting rules, which allowed them to put these bonds in their long-term investment portfolio or hold to maturity portfolio. That portfolio is accounted for using accrual accounting which meant that on a daily basis, you would not have to recognize gains or losses. Now, that solves one problem. It solves the financial reporting problem. And the accountants, I'm sure, said that is allowed. The rules allow you to do that. Now, the question, though, the rhetorical question, is the interest rate risk really gone? No, it's not gone. And it's asymmetric. It can't but, go down. But, it can only go up. But yeah, but in, the key thing here is how the brains are working of the senior people at the bank. They're thinking if interest rates rise and the value of the bonds go down, we don't have to report it. It's an unrealized loss. No problem. If the value of the, if the interest rates drop and the value of the bonds rise, we could sell them and book it as earnings. It's like a free option. Okay. Here is a problem. And so they followed the rules, but they did something that made no sense. This is the Enron story. Following the rules and did something that made no sense. Now, it just took some analysts to do the math and calculate that the amount of unrealized loss in that bond portfolio was probably greater than the entire equity of the bank. It was. And as soon as people saw that, they said, it doesn't matter what the financial statements say. We want to look at true economic reality. And people started pulling their money out. And when they pulled their money out, you had to sell the bonds and recognize the losses. Game over. That happened faster than Enron. But it was analogous at Enron because in October of 2001, people started looking at one of the deals I had done in great detail. It had been reported and disclosed in the footnotes for years. But they focused on it and said, this might be technically correct. And the postmortem showed that you can argue it was technically correct. It was in the gray area. You could have argued both ways, probably. It was technically correct, but it made no sense. Mm. Enron, why would you do this? Why did you need to do something like this? And kind of like Warren Buffett. Mm. He has many great quotes, but one of my favorite quotes is, there's never just one cockroach in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> and if you find that one dead cockroach, it means there are hundreds you're not seeing behind the wall. <laughs> and if a company would assess risk in that manner, 
take that type of risk, like Silicon Valley Bank did, like Enron did, like GE did, eventually people will will either see the cockroaches or assume they're there and they'll price it in eventually. The analysts had buy notices on the analyst notes on the months, weeks, and days leading up to the collapse. All had buys. Goldman Sachs had a buy seven days before the collapse. And what's amazing is that, remember, these were financial transactions we were doing to change the appearance of Enron's financial conditions. Who were the counterparties in those financial transactions? The banks. Yeah, they knew about it. No one suggests they didn't know about it, as far as I know. Well, but for the analysts, our phrase to explain all this comes from Mark Twain, which is never expect a man to understand something when his job depends on not understanding it. So for the analysts looking at those <laughs> footnotes, they, they are not paid to point that out. And our podcast on SVB yeah. Bank was called Damned by Duration. They simply got a massive yeah. duration mismatch and never imagined that all of their loyal clients would come to them and say, could we actually have our money back at some point? And that, that yeah. damned the No, bank. there's an old Amish phrase that's similar that I often use is much of what we see is dependent upon what we're looking for. <laughs> Let's take it back. We're going to turn this podcast into a two-parter. Um, it's been solid gold, solid gold from the get-go. I'm keen to ask about the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance in part two, because that's what you're training me to think about is the rules. You're allowed to put your money into a tax wrapper for savings and investments, but you're not allowed to avoid paying tax. And this black, white, gray is just a fascinating theme to pick up in part two. But thank you, Andy Fasto, for your time. We'll be back next week with our 101st episode to continue this conversation. Part two of our time with Andy Fasto. See you there. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nuzum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, for my co-host, Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. 